Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. I'm going to pray to begin. Dear God, thank you for these absolutely and perfectly beautiful people. Thank you for their presence here this morning. They've come here to be in touch with you, to hear a word from you, Please let me not get in the way of that. In whatever ways I try to assert ego or opinion or pretense, work in spite of me and say something good and true and beautiful this morning, I pray. Amen. The tone of Palm Sunday is impossible to get perfectly right. It's this gnarled mix of celebration and hope with impending terror and death. It's tough to get that tone right, even when that is actually so true of our lives. That we live in these spaces between beauty and pain and living and dying. But this episode, Jesus' triumphal entry, captures that dialectic so well. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as a triumphant royal returned to their realm. And there's this comedic irony to his arrival, a self-aware parody of worldly power. As he enters into his rulership, not flexing the muscles of military might, with lethal legions and gun-toting garrisons and banners and the baying of heralds, he arrives without the implication of preponderant violence to protect his claim to authority. His authority is organic, grounded in God, and offered to him by a public that recognizes his role. But there hangs in the air a threat of violence over him. It stalks him as his ride clops down the cobblestones, It bites at the back of the mind. It lilts the loyalty of his followers. It animates the bodies of the agents of the state whose eyes surveil him. This is a seditious act of pretense, what he's doing. It's mockery. It's stirring up dissension and distraction from the Roman way, and it's not to be tolerated. I'm going to read at length from an article about Jewish messianism in the first century just to give you a picture of how these kinds of pretenders are approached. Two of the messianic pretenders in the period following the death of Herod the Great, Simon and Athranges, engaged in violent activities against the Jewish ruling class and the Romans. Simon was beheaded by Gratus, a Roman officer. Athranges and his brothers were caught and taken prisoner by Gratus and Ptolemy, a friend of Herod the Great. 
After the death of Jesus, while Thetis was procurator of Judea, a prophet named Thetis led a large number of people out to the Jordan River, promising that the river would be parted at his command. Although there's no evidence that this group was armed or committed violent acts, they took their possessions with them and thus were apparently well-organized and had a purpose which could be viewed by the Romans as rebellious. Phaedus sent a squadron, 500 or 1,000 men, of cavalry after them, and Thetis was beheaded. In 56 CE, a prophet whom Josephus, a Jewish historian, calls the Egyptian, led a large crowd to the Mount of Olives and asserted that at his command the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. Josephus says that he intended to set himself up as a tyrant. This may be a pejorative paraphrase of a messianic claim and its acceptance by a large number of people. The procurator Felix attacked the Egyptian and his followers killing 400 and taking 200 prisoners. Much like our own state, when confronted with assertions of black autonomy, Rome suffered no sedition, no threat to the Pax Romana. So execution is the only end for this journey into Jerusalem. And so Jesus' triumphal entry is actually a rival into a deathly geography. If he could survive the antagonism of the outer spaces with his secretive itinerancy, he will not escape death here, and everyone knows it. Yet somehow, in the face of the overwhelming might of the Roman Empire and its universal and even divine claims to absolute and unyielding authority, these folks find hope. And this young Messiah who rides in on a donkey, holding no weapons of offense, nor tools of defense, knowing full well the implications of his political pageantry, they cast their lots in with him. Consequences come as they may. Theirs is a hope against hope, a hope in the face of death. It's a question worth considering How might we find joy and hope and celebrate in the face of impending death? I want to bring us to a truth through this text, but I need to scale down for just a second and attend to a detail that you may have left unconsidered or missed entirely. Jesus needs a colt to ride on. And so he sends his disciples to go get one from someone who has one. And it's so interesting that this small, practical, logistical detail is included in the Bible's tortuous economy of prose. Very little detail is made available to us in general. But the author found this moment significant. The book could have done without the detail, it seems, Jesus could have simply shown up on a donkey, and I don't think any of us would just be wondering, where did he get this donkey? We need this question answered. But the the author wants to show us. Why? Well, think of what's being asked. The disciples are asking for a significant gift. Not only a living, breathing being, but an invaluable tool crucial to the survival of whatever family happens to own it. Livestock was not cheap. 
And animals were people's means of production. They were essential tools to the lifestyles of the families who owned them, and they weren't ornamental. They were necessary. A family's animals were their subsistence. And while these animals weren't pets in a way that we might recognize, kept for sentimental and relational reasons, a family's animals were more than just workers or tools. They lived in the houses with people. Urban dwellings were tightly packed without room for outdoor corrals, and most animals lived inside the home, their heat used at, at night. So they'd be on the first level, and the, the spaces, the dwellings would be kind of cut out in the middle. And so the animals would be on the bottom, their heat would rise, and people would, would welcome them into their homes. And intimacy develops this way. Animals and their relational dispositions, humans living symbiotically with them, even sleeping in the same spaces with them, meant that there existed a level of value and connection between human and animal that surpassed mere instrumentality. So when the disciples come prowling around asking for someone's cult, they're asking for someone's livelihood and perhaps even a beloved member of that family. And in this case, the cult is young, so young that it has never worked. So it's a puppy or a kitten, right? But also an investment. However it means to this family, it means a great deal to them. And here come some dirty disciples asking for it. So Jesus anticipates resistance. And he tells his disciples to say, to tell these folks who, who are hesitant, the Lord has need of it. When they invoke the Lord, a few things happen. First, the Lord, honorific, kyrios in Greek, is a title given to God. So when they say that the Lord has need of it, they're implying that God, the maker and ruler over all things, wants what's his. But secondly, as Jesus' ministry has clearly preceded him, people understand his own claim to lordship as the definitive representative of God on earth, if not God himself. And so it's understood that Jesus is requesting this animal in his status as Lord with all the rights of the creator God. And thirdly, this language is specifically and intentionally counterposed to Caesar, who is also called Lord. The critical parody of Roman power begins here. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is God's representative on the earth, and Caesar is not. To accept this claim that the disciples are making, the claim that the Lord has need of it, is an act of faith. It's the belief that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and it is a risk. As everyone understands the implication of recognizing Jesus' lordship over and against Caesar's. They become an accomplice and their obedience to Christ and disobedience to the state. They cast their lot in with Christ who rides toward death, knowing that their involvement might cost them their lives, even beyond their beloved cult who might die in military slaughter as the state comes down on every messianic pretender. This is a great act of faith, 
the payment of a massive cost, and the acceptance of an enormous risk. But what is this text saying to us? A few things. First, to give sacrificially on the face of it. That seems to be the most basic meaning. Materially. Give the things that support our lives, our money, our resources, our property, whatever the Lord might need. Second, it's to recognize the, that Christ's lordship operates over and against every worldly power, especially the worldly powers that claim divine authority. And in this recognition, we're asked to resist the imperial pretenders, resist even if it means death. But here's the one that I want to sit with for a moment. The text tells us that there are things we are asked to give up because the Lord has need of them. And here I'm thinking of the cult as a symbol, a symbol of whatever we might hold dear, but in our holding are not serving the Lord. If Jesus came and asked for your life, would you give it away? If Jesus came and asked for your job, would you give it away? If Jesus came and asked for your ministry, would you give it away? We have this horrible habit of thinking that the church belongs to us. Or at least that something within it does. At least a little corner that we can conserve for ourselves. Some fiefdom that testifies to the worth of our lives and the value of our gifts. But the church is not yours. And it's not mine. It's Christ's. And your ministry is not yours. It's the Spirit's. And if the Lord came and asked for your church or for your ministry because she has need of it, would you release your vice grip? Would you soften your grasp? Would you hand over the reins? And would you do so without grudge or bitterness? Would you hand it over and follow Christ into the fray, or would you watch him go, turn your back, and drift away? Because it was never about serving Christ in the first place, but was about ownership itself. I've titled this sermon, Releasing the Reins, which is a triple entendre. As we were asked to release the reins that guide the cults, Whatever our cult is, whatever precious and dear thing we have that God needs, we're also asked to relinquish the reins of our lives, to hand them over to God who is in control, and so give up our pretension to power. We're asked to release the reign of Christ into the world as ruler, as one who reigns backwards, who empties himself and takes on the form of a slave to die in service to the people. We're asked to release the reins in these three ways, but I want to add one final form. As Jesus parades in humility, the people lay down what they have, palm branches and clothes, their pride and political allegiances. And there's a slippage here in the text, an opening that has befuddled interpreters for centuries because Jesus is supposed to be riding two animals, 
How that worked is abundantly unclear, but we've wondered what the purpose of these two animals is when only one is necessary. And it's been thought that two animals were required because of the great weight that was being carried. Not because Jesus was abnormally sized, but because he bore the weight of the world. The weight of our sin, of our anxieties, of our heartbreak and brokenness. As the crowd released their clothing, their palms, their symbols of worship, they released to him their hopelessness, their loneliness, their alienation, and their hard-won bitterness. So would you release these things too? Because the Lord has need of it. The Lord needs not just what is good and beautiful and useful about you, but also your pain and your anxiety. Would you release that to the one who will carry these things for you into death, killing them with his own body and leaving them in hell? Rising again, free of sin and death and every antichrist power that would break us and take us and rob us of our peace. Would you let these things go so that the Lord might make use of them? Might use them as the raw materials out of which she will shape a new world. Where we are released from the burdens that we can no longer carry. Hold tight to these things if you will. Turn the disciples away and make the Lord look elsewhere. But there is an invitation made to you today and every day to release the reins of what you hold so dear, the beauty and the pain. And let the one who intends to carry these things to the cross bear them away into a promise that outstrips all our striving and all our imagining. There's such freedom in letting go, but it's so hard to practice. It's almost never as easy as a one-time event, something we have to do over and over. And right now, as I close, I want to be the disciple that comes knocking. Can you close your eyes with me for just a moment and think? As I suggest, there are things we have to let go of. What comes to mind? What precious thing comes to mind? What are you so afraid to lose that you become paralyzed at the thought of its loss? What pain comes to mind? What feels so fresh and so deep that you could never be whole? What is this thing that God is prying at? That your hands are tired of squeezing, your muscles taut and exhausted, your blood running thin and slow. Can you soften your grip? Can you open yourself up? Can you release it alongside your breath? into the hands of the one who makes you and holds you in love. 
The Lord has need of it, loved one. It's not yours. It's not yours anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.